Good morning. Who or what do you trust? Consider the, the relationships that you trust the most and what it takes to build into them. What does it take to build a relationship of trust? There's certain knowledge of the person, there's certain vulnerability, time spent with them. What else does it take? A certain amount of honesty or integrity. You can trust what they say. There's a certain road, uh, 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 a background that you come to rely on. What does it take to break that? Maybe, maybe this is just bringing up right off the bat bad memories, but what does it take to break then those relationships? And even more, I want us to ask, what is it that threatens your trust in Christ? Because this is the context that the letter of Hebrews is, is written. So if you think about that for your own self, maybe you don't have a relationship at all with, with Jesus at this point. You're here, you're exploring, you're investigating, you wouldn't say you know Jesus at all, and welcome. You're beginning a relationship with Christ. He, he is your Lord and God, but you don't realize that yet. And so you're just starting out. But maybe you would say you do know Jesus. You have walked with him. What would you say threatens your continued trust? Are there things on the horizon? Is there something in the future that you worry about could threaten it? If this were to happen or that were to happen, maybe I would fall back. Maybe I would fall away. Maybe you wonder, what more is it going to cost me? Is it going to be this painful all the time? Is it going to be this hard all the time? Is that what you're considering? Maybe you've had trouble in the past. You feel like you've missed out on opportunities in life because of following Christ, and you wonder how much you can sustain that. You're not sure if it's worth the cost. Maybe you feel deceived. Maybe you, you feel that you were promised this amazing, blessed life, and you're still waiting for that. You don't think you've really experienced it. Maybe there are rivals starting to emerge in your heart. Rivals that you worry, you worry about your kid's future, you worry about taking more on at work, and they start to gain ascendancy in your heart over Christ. Would that threaten your trust in Jesus? The congregation that seems to be receiving this letter to the Hebrews, we don't know exactly the context, but uh, the best arguments that I'm convinced of is that it's written to a congregation likely in Rome having gone through some persecution under Claudius, Emperor Claudius, his persecution didn't always involve death. It involved uh, loss of property, imprisonment. So later on in the letter, it gets referred to as this sort of persecution that they suffered. And there seems to be impending persecution that the, the writer is warning them and, and trying to encourage them to endure through, which is probably Nero's persecution, which gets wild and intense, and Nero's just insane. So it seems like it's written to a congregation in between these two periods, and he's saying to them, endure. 
do not fall back into the easier lifestyle that you are tempted to. Probably a Jewish Christian uh, congregation, and so they are tempted to go back into this Jewish religion that was just more respected by the Roman population. There were uh, millions and millions of Jews in the Roman Empire at this time. They respected the ancient aspect of it. And this newfangled Christian thing, they didn't quite understand. It had these universalistic demands. And so it brought on more and more Roman persecution. And so it seems like the letter is written to them saying, don't go back. Don't fall under the, the threats of these things that may lead you to not trust Christ anymore. And it's into that context that the writer offers this, this hymn, this praise. This, the first four verses are one sentence where he simply offers us Christ. He simply exalts Christ. Into that situation, into what he knows, what they've been through, he thinks what they're going to endure in the future, he says, look at Christ. Exalt Christ Remember who Jesus, the Son, is. If you're writing a letter to someone who's enduring this sort of thing about their faith, how would you start it? What do you think God would say to you? Because here we have this amazing passage of this is who your God is. This is what he's done. This is what he has said. And this is why he is trustworthy. And so let's pray and get into these few verses. Father, we do praise you for this day. We praise you for the day of resurrection that we can come and worship together as one body. And we praise you for your word. We ask that your spirit would make it come alive to our hearts and to our minds. That we would be convicted of sin and that we would be uh, encouraged by your glory. That we would be comforted that you would reach those who are brokenhearted with your mercy and challenge those who are hard, that your word, as we get to uh, glimpse into who Christ is, that that would enthrall us and excite us and uh, change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the start of this letter, as, as I'm, uh, I'm beginning a new series in the book of Hebrews, when I preach, and it's a very... Uh, exciting thing, I think. And so, uh, right when he starts, he starts off talking about God's revelation. And he, uh, the first verse, it, it's almost like he's, he's sort of waxing poetic about long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God did this, but now he's doing, or he did this. And so he starts off very clearly saying, God has spoken. And there's both this continuity and this discontinuity with the past. The continuity is, it goes with what he has said to the prophets, to your fathers. And so at long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's acknowledging that this happened in all sorts of ways. If you think about the Old Testament, it happened through uh, uh, poetry and historical narrative and psalms, and, and all sorts of manners and, and forms. But then the focus is on 
the discontinuity. He said he did all of that in the past. But, in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken. He has spoken to us by his son. So there's this buildup, and it's almost as if God is saying, this, he's laying down the final card he was holding in the back of his hand. He's, he's, this is the, the trump card to say, finally, all of the revelation that he was showing us who he is through the Old Testament, it was growing and growing and growing. Finally, it is fulfilled in this climax of the Son. This is the final revelation of who God is in his Son. Now we see that because he says in these last days, and you may wonder what that means, it's important that we understand what that means. This was written about 2,000 years ago. And he says it was the last days then. So was he wrong? Was he wrong? No. In the, even in the time period in which this was written, these last days or the last days took on this technical significance to say there's no more left for God to tell us about who he is. This is the revelation that we need. And so the Christian church unanimously has said from the resurrection till now, until he comes again, are the last days, meaning we have all we need. These are the last days. You don't have to worry about some newfangled, code-breaking prediction of when Jesus will return, and maybe in a couple, in, in next year, those will really be the last days. No, that misses the whole point. These are the last days because God has spoken, period. In Jesus. Now that doesn't mean, some of you may hear that and think that's very bizarre. That doesn't mean God isn't active. God is constantly active by his Holy Spirit, bringing us more and more of Christ. Bringing us more and more back to the word, uniting us more fully, changing our hearts, changing our communities, all these things that has nothing to do with how is God still active in the world? Absolutely, he is but he's not giving us new information of who God is because Jesus is the final revelation. So if you think about it in the relationship of, of trust, it's almost like he has this long history with your people, your tribe, your nation, and now he's giving you everything. He's, he's coming clean. He's revealing all of who he is. He's not holding back, and he's doing it once and for all. Now, I want you to think about, we're going we're to have to fill that in quite a lot more with the content, but just think about what that could impact, what that could change about your own faith, your own approach to Christ. The fact that Jesus is sufficient, he is the sufficient revelation of God, and he's the final revelation of God, doesn't that run so incredibly counter to every instinct of our culture that says we got to get something new all the time in every possible way, basically? We always need something new. And it's more so now than maybe, maybe the history of the world more so. Right now, we always need something new. And here we have a 2,000-year-old document saying, this is it. 
God has spoke. I came across a, an article in the New Yorker about all these, um, uh, it was taking the occasion of New Year's resolutions, and it was looking at all the different sort of self-improvement uh, books and movements that are being uh, uh, published. Apparently, it's this big $10 billion industry of self-help and self-improvement. Uh, the other title online was called Improving Ourselves to Death. Improving Ourselves to Death. And it's trying to uh, analyze and cull out all the benefits that, that come from all of these new movements and books. And uh, it's not just sort of cheesy, positive thinking. Part of the article was trying to say, now we're getting these top-ranked academics and professors with serious data used to track our self-improvement. It's not, it's not just, you know, Norman Vincent Peale and like this positive thinking, I'm going to throw out good thoughts into the universe. No, it's saying we are under pressure to show that we know how to lead the perfect life. And so we must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. Now, I don't want to bust anybody's bubbles. I, I realize you may be counting your steps right now, and praise God, that's great. God can use that. We, you know, exercise is a good thing. What I was amazed by, by this article, and I could go on more, but I won't bore you. Um, I was amazed by, one, it's all just law. There's no grace being offered. It's all law. It's all, we've got to find, they're giving us more and more burden to accomplish something, to save ourselves, to improve ourselves. But that's not the point. My other amazing, uh, the other amazing thing that I noticed was that they're so frantic and desperate to find some new way to improve themselves, some new way to improve their relationship, some new way to improve their soul. It's so tragic, isn't it? I mean, one guy, these two professors spend this year of focusing on, uh, on different methods, and then he realizes at the end of the year, man, I was just focusing on myself. My wife's about to have a baby, and our relationship isn't that great. This is in the New Yorker, which apparently is supposed to be, you know, intelligent, intellectual, uh, journal sort of thing. These are the best academics working at how can we improve ourselves. It's such a mystery. The conclusion is basically go to an art museum and enjoy it. Take a walk in the woods, maybe read a novel. That was the conclusion. It's so sad. It's so sad. I hope that you can at least imagine being saved from that sort of rat race of spirituality, that rat race of self-improvement, because here we have God saying, I have spoken. I have spoken in the Son. In the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are encouraged to trust him as the final revelation. The second part of, of this, um, the first half of this section, is not only that he is the final, and final revelation, but that he's also the complete revelation. 
And the difference there is this isn't just a story that he happens to end at a random time. He's not telling a story and then, all right, the end, and now you've got to figure out the rest of it. He's saying, I've given you everything. This is completely who I am. So it's not only God has spoken, it's certainly God has spoken. God, has, God himself fully has spoken in the Son. What I mean by that is primarily these two amazing phrases in verse 3. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Wow. He is the radiance of his glory. What does that mean? Well, the radiance of his glory, the brightness of his glory, the effulgence, he is, if, if God is God, he is the thing that shines when God shines. He is, if you think of the sun, we're not able to look directly at the sun, but we can see its rays, and the rays tell us about the sun. I'm saying S-U-N, like in the sky. Sorry, that was a little confusing. We can't look at the S-U-N in the sky directly, but we can know about the sun and learn about the sun through the rays that shine. That's something of what we're being told here. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When God shines, and it's his nature to shine, it's his nature to be glorious. Some people think this is really just saying two of the same things. This is a kind of parallel statement. Because if he were to be, if he were to express his nature, he would shine because he's glorious. And Jesus is the shining of that. But he's also the exact imprint of his nature. If you think of imprint, you think of those old seals that would have to be made by wax, and when it's wet, you can seal it so that you can guarantee you know who this, uh, who this person is, where this letter is coming from. It's that sort of image. But that word that's being used there, hypostasis, becomes important in later Trinitarian debates to describe Jesus as very God. We say in the Nicene Creed, very God of very God. Light from light. This isn't something else. It's not like God is here and then Jesus is just showing us this part. He is the exact imprint of his nature. This is fully God of fully God. As Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He really is God. He doesn't show himself like he did at Mount Sinai, and this will come up later in, in Hebrews, but it's God's glory in a way that we can actually see it. It's God's glory in a way that we can actually touch and, and experience it, because if God comes in his glory not in that way, it's as if Mount Sinai, if you remember, is where he reveals the law, but only Moses could ascend, and anyone else who even touches the mountain on the bottom is struck dead. He doesn't come to us like that. That's long ago and in many ways and in many places. In Jesus, he comes in a glory that we can know and experience and draw near without fear. And so again, if you think about a trust relationship, you don't have to worry about what God isn't telling you here. 
You know, every, every relationship that you have, you can't quite get into their soul 100%, just as you can't get into your soul, your own soul 100%. And so you never have that 100% reliable revelation of who that person is. Here, we're being told by God himself, this is my full 100% revelation, the Son. Go to the Son. If you want to know who God is, go to Jesus. Exhaustively, we can go to him. So it's not just the final revelation. It's the complete. It's what it was all meant to work towards. Now this too runs up against this urge that we have to, to find something new. Um, the kids these days call it FOMO. Don't we all have FOMO, which is fear of missing out? Don't, don't you? Don't you worry about what you're going to... If you don't have the... I just told my son about you know, the new iPhone that can read your face. It, that's, it's crazy. Don't you kind of really want that? It identifies you by your face. Sorry. Shouldn't get that excited. But we... But don't we all have some sort of FOMO like that? If it's not technology, then it's something else, some other experience. And how much of that is related to your relationship to Christ? If I'm really going to go all in with Jesus, what else am I going to be missing out on? Because all these other people seem to be having a lot of fun. Their relationships are thriving. They're making a lot of money. What am I going to be missing out on? It's so tempting to, to hedge our bets. We're, we're, we're in Christ, but we've got one foot in, one foot out. If this Christ thing doesn't work out, then at least we got our schooling and our education, our wealth. Is that expressing your own FOMO? This worry that maybe Christ isn't the full, complete revelation of God. I was reading Psalm 63, and the psalmist here does not express FOMO. Listen to what he says. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So we have incredible confidence and certainty and assurance that we can trust the Son completely because this is who God is. If we want to know who God is, go to the Word, Jesus Christ. But if we have that, I want to fill out um, with this second half, I want to fill out a little more of what exactly are we told that God is like? If we're told, okay, look to Jesus, look to the Son, it's been this long, drawn-out uh, history, and it's finally had its climax in Christ, what exactly is that? What is, exactly does that mean? We've learned he's the radiance of his glory, but what does he actually shine? The first part is that we realize that the Son is the purpose of the story. He's the end. He's the telos. He's even the writer of the story. And so we are encouraged to trust the Son completely because He is 
life. He is your life. In verse 2, the second half after he says, He has spoken to us by his Son. He says, Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then in verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what we see there in lots of places in, in the New Testament is that the second person of the Trinity was active all the way back in Genesis 1. That he created the word by speaking. When God speaks, what does he speak? He speaks the word. He speaks Christ. And he creates everything by and through Christ. So we're told he created the world through Christ. Christ is active in upholding the world. Now he's sustaining it. And he's also its heir. Meaning, He's the one it's all meant to be given to. He's the one that's going to inherit it. Now, this inheritance language, you have to put yourself in a, in a traditional culture. The firstborn son gets the inheritance of the father. That's who Jesus is. He gets the What's the inheritance of the father? What does the father have to give? Everything. Everything is meant for Christ. You get a sense of this from our Old Testament passage in Psalm 2, I'll just remind you of a couple of verses there. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, speaking of, of the king, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now this psalm is one that gets quoted often in the New Testament because it's, it's almost as if the psalmist is saying something he doesn't really realize what he's saying. He's, he's speaking beyond his own knowledge, led by the Holy Spirit, because he is speaking of, uh, uh, he's almost speaking in Trinitarian terms without knowing it, showing us this relationship between God the Father and the Son, and how the nations will be the heritage of the Messiah King. But then did you notice the power that is assumed here, that is, that this beautiful power where he says, why do the nations rage? You get the, this picture that there are nations assembling against Israel. Why do they rage? Why do they fight against you, God? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's how incredible his power is. If all the powers of the world were, were added up and geared up towards God, he would still laugh. Who do you laugh at? You laugh at those who don't even have a chance to compete with you. Those are who you laugh at. That is amazing power. That is amazing majesty. And we're told actually in Acts 4, the disciples apply this to what happened in Jesus, that all of the nations came together and they raged against God on the cross. They raged against him, thinking that they would defeat him. And the apostles quote this in a prayer in Acts 4. And they say, you, God, have accomplished your predestined plan. You have won. He's still laughing through the death and resurrection. God has accomplished his plan. And so their prayer is that they would continue to preach with boldness as they are being persecuted. 
But if we think, if we get back to uh, the fact that we are told the Son is the powerful King, this Messiah that they were waiting for, I think it's very often easy for us to think that Jesus may not be that important. We, we can read Hebrews 1 and think, yeah, we shrug. We blink, we think, yeah, that's interesting. Can you have that sort of reaction to Hebrews 1? Can you actually? I don't think you can. And I don't think you can have that reaction to Colossians 1 either. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Talking of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. Can you have this sort of shrug reaction to learning about that? To learning about who Christ is? To learning later in Colossians 3 that that same Christ is the one who has been raised and you have been raised with him. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We're sort of over, overwhelmed. We should at least read this and be overwhelmed with what we are being told who Christ is. With what we are being told the Son is. Who has God revealed himself to be in Jesus? He is the one who all things are meant for. He is the one who created all things. And so we should think, trust, trust in a relationship, it doesn't seem like the right metaphor to use anymore because we're just blown away by who God is at this point. He seems so overwhelmingly transcendent that we're, one. yeah, I mean, he's, he's my life, okay. He's good, okay. What, what should I do with this? But there's one thing that we haven't looked at in this passage that is almost a, a plot twist. If he's the purpose of the story and even the writer of the story, he's the creator He's also the one who made purification for your sins. That's the plot twist. That's the thing that you could never have expected and otherwise could never have had a relationship with this sort of God. And this is that final point that we are encouraged to to trust the Son completely, not only because he is life itself, but because he's your Savior. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let's look at that for a minute. After making purification for sins, that's not a very common way to talk about it in the, in the New Testament, but purification is the, the word in the Greek is where we get catharsis from, so you get the sense that he's, he's purging it from you. He's not just, he, he's not just forgiving you. Sin is something that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be healed. So it's being purged. He's purged it from you. He's dealt with it, and he's done it in the past. This is, again, a theme that will come up in a lot of Hebrews, that he's done it once for all in the past. After making purification, 
of sins? Do you, do you worry that a sin that you're struggling with or hiding will outdo that purification? Will not be covered by that sort of purification? Because it won't. It won't outdo it. You won't go deeper than Jesus went on the cross after making purification. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice these two things that they held together. That if you think of it in a relationship, he not only has this power, he's creator, he's sustainer of all things, and now he's at the right hand of God, the right hand being the place of power. He sits there. Why does he sit, by the way? Why does he sit? Is he lazy? He sits because he's done. He sits. The priest in the temple always had to stand. And he sits because he's done. That's the image that you have there. Jesus' work is done. So he's seated on the majesty on high. So he has this power, but he also has this compassion. He has this care that later on Hebrews will tell us he was tempted in the way that you are. He knows your suffering intimately. He took on flesh and blood for you. He carries both of these things. This isn't a relationship only of someone so far above that they can't even relate to you. He is your perfect Savior with the compassion to care, the, the power to purge and deal with your sins. We even, I think we sang it, didn't we? There was a song that referenced the fact that, oh no, it was in the absolution. The absolution from Hebrews 7 references the fact that he is still now interceding for you. Meaning, he didn't just do it in the past, but he's still, as he is seated with power, he's fulfilling your prayer according to his will. He is your human representative in God's presence so that as we unite to him by faith, we are in God's presence. So if you step back and see what he has done in this passage, he has built up this climax of promise, promise, promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, and we can be sure and certain this is exhaustively who God is. It's exhaustively who God is, and when we look to Je- because when we look to Jesus, he's the radiance of God's glory. He is the, the same nature of God, the same sort of thing of God, and he is the one who not only has made purification, but is still seated as your Lord and Savior in God's presence. Wow. Wow. I hope that if we were to meditate on this more and more and try to realize what's going on, we would see that FOMO should go out the window that this desire to always find something new, this frantic search for the latest self-salvation tool would be nonsensical in the presence of this God. He's saying, this, this is who I am now. Approach me. Come near. Draw near. Trust me as your Savior. Remember the context. They're going to be threatened with persecution to fall back, to go to the easy life, the comfortable life. And he's saying, guys, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on the Son. That is what you need. That is 
what you need to trust him, to see him as supremely trustworthy. As one of Wesley's hymns puts it, Jesus, my all in all, thou art. My rest in toil, my ease in pain, the medicine of my broken heart. In war, my peace, in loss, my gain. My smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame, my glory, and my crown. In want, my plentiful supply, in weakness, my almighty power, in bonds, my perfect liberty, my light in Satan's darkest hour. In grief, my joy unspeakable, my life in death, my heaven in hell. That's from Wesley's hymn. Uh, I think it's called Thou, who knows it? Sweetest Calm of Deeper Prose, something like that. Is that how you see Jesus? That he is supreme, that he is your all in all, that you can trust him. Let's meditate on him as if we get to approach him at his table.